so thankful that we each have the opportunity that's ours this morning to assemble and together. What a blessing indeed it is to sing the songs that we have, to approach the throne of God in prayer, and the opportunity, of course, for the additional acts of worship in which we'll be engaged this morning. So appreciative, as earlier mentioned, for those gentlemen, those men who so superbly led the worship last Lord's Day. Thankful certainly for them and for the great work that they did. And my family and I are delighted to be back with our church family today. You'll notice the title of the lesson has to do with parents and children. And we're going to devote the next few moments to reflecting on perhaps one unusual or at least one realistic consideration that often is a matter of great reflection. Bad children of good people. As we do that, may I suggest that we begin with some introductory remarks that will, I hope, provide a foundation for which we can move from that point forward. Parenthood. I know that I speak before a host of individuals who are blessed to be parents, and certainly we each who are know very well the tremendous blessing that parenthood offers. You thrill when you see your children make right decisions and you see them make those choices in life that direct them in the proper and the right way. It just fills your heart in such a remarkable fashion. But by the same token, we all understand that as parents, along with it comes a tremendous obligation. God has bequeathed to us the safeguarding and the direction of these youngsters and the souls that are they. So that, of course, desirous at the day of judgment, they will have lived in such a way that they too will be found righteous and faithful. Parenthood, you see, offers not only a fantastic blessing, but also a sobering obligation and responsibility. Today, as we give some thought about that, the bottom of that slide will bring us to the specific consideration before us. Maybe you and I have known families, husbands and wives who themselves appear to be so good and so godly, and yet their children didn't turn out quite so godly. Their children chose pathways in life that were far less ideal and far less righteous and good. And maybe you and I have often been bothered and troubled by that reality. But the Bible has much to say about it. And today I would like to just share, using the Word of God, a number of attributes and features that not only can encourage all of us as parents, but can also help us to appreciate some eternal truths that are very general in terms of this subject before us. With that, why don't we begin with the first point of six, an observation. I mentioned it already briefly, but you and I know it well. There are circumstances in which you and I can so well appreciate in which a godly father and mother and it seems that their children walked right along the same footsteps, and they too became noble and powerful citizens in the kingdom of God. And they chose to live appropriately and faithfully and rightly. But on the other hand, that isn't always true. For we probably can think of circumstances in which there were parents who, as far as those external could tell, they too were noble and righteous and good, and yet their children... The time came, perhaps it was shortly after the 18th year, maybe sometime thereafter, perhaps even before the 18th year, but those children already were bent in such a direction that you could see the writing on the wall. Things did not look good and they didn't get any better. 
those children chose a wrong pathway and they seemingly languish in it. What sadness, in fact, comes. You'll notice the middle points on that slide, may I say, that every one of us as parents, especially those who are parents of younger children, this thought, in a sense, it haunts us, doesn't it? Because we want to be able to look down the stream of time, 15 or 20 years, what are my children going to become? I want more than anything for them to be godly, righteous citizens. Will they be that way? We don't know. As I mentioned, maybe that haunts us. But may I say, as parents, there are some things in the Word of God that we can do. Things that, in fact, can rest on our hearts and daily in our application that can lead toward the reality of their life as we want it to be. May I say, as we come to the bottom part of that slide, it is surely one of the grandest thrills of life to any godly parent when those children... They make the decision, I want to be baptized, Dad. I know that Jesus Christ died for me and I'm a sinner and I have seen the example of you and Mom and the others that are faithful Christians and I want to obey my Lord. Don't you just appreciate what a sense that fills the heart of a father and a mother with for a child to make statements like that? You see that kind of thing and of course the life that they choose to lead thereafter. A young son that starts leading singing. That little boy who soon leads prayers and engages in the other attributes and maybe the time comes he delivers a first sermon. It's an exciting time. You also realize that young lady, that little girl, who also, she says the same thing in that she too wants to obey the gospel. And as she matures and as she grows, and as you can see the development within her of God-given talent, and she is excited to use it as God would have her to, what an exciting thing for any godly father and mother. But on the other hand, how tragic and how many a sleepless night spent by that father and mother shedding tears over a son or daughter who's walked away from the faith who has in fact not turned his or her life over to the gospel, and who seemingly thrills in living away from the things that are good. I'm sure that child will never know the number of prayers offered on his or her behalf, never appreciate the anxiety and the anguish brought to the life of a godly parent or grandparent. But you see, it is the case, as we notice in this opening observation, it does happen. What about point number two? What else can we say about it? As we use the Word of God as a guide, may I ask you to consider that the question, or at least the matter before us, was raised like this. We were speaking about bad children of good people. Let's develop this point. Although it's not a matter that's a great deal of comfort to all of us as parents, might we say this, sometimes good people are not good parents. Note the distinction. Sometimes good people are not the best parents. And of course, that's a challenge to all of us who are parents because just being good in some way of speaking about that perhaps isn't enough. Consider this thought with me. Isn't it true that maybe there's a general belief? A belief that, well, I'm a good person, my wife's a good person, and surely my children will just follow along that pathway. Surely they will choose to follow the kind of life that they have seen exhibited in their mother and me. 
may I say to you, we should be careful with that kind of thinking. That doesn't guarantee anything. Just because my wife and I may have chosen a certain way of life, that may not be overwhelmingly sufficient enough in the eyes of that child. Maybe they haven't come to appreciate the same thing. These points, perhaps, are case in point. In Ezekiel 18, verse number 20, The soul that sinneth, it shall die. The Son shall not bear the iniquity of the Father, neither shall the Father bear the iniquity of the Son. The righteousness of the righteous shall be upon Him, and the wickedness of the wicked shall be upon Him. It's not possible to transfer righteousness and goodness directly from one generation to the next one. I can't give of my righteousness, neither can you, to your children or mine. It doesn't work that way. It has to be developed in them by their choice and by their volition. In addition to that, might we notice, we have some biblical examples of individuals that may be a strong reminder to each of us. What about Eli? As we open the book of 1 Samuel in the Old Testament, we readily read about the gentleman that was the 14th judge of Israel, a man named Eli. No doubt he was a good man. In fact, I've listed a few of the particulars of his life. He was a judge, and there were only 15 of them among God's people, and he was one of them. He was a prophet, according to the book of 1 Samuel. In addition to that, this man was a Levite. Without doubt, religion had been a very ongoing and consistent part of his life for years. But yet, what about his parenthood? Eli's sons were scoundrels. Now, they too had the opportunity to serve in light of the tabernacle of the day. But as they did so, they in fact engaged in acts that are almost unbelievable to you and me. They stole what belonged to the people, taking advantage of their position to take sacrifices before it was even offered to God. And not only that, when the young women would come, they would have a little activity on the side a little fornication, if you please, with the women at the, at the actual character of the tabernacle. Notice, here was a man that was a good man, but his children sure weren't so. What about David? You and I, in our mind, we raised to consider the gentleman named David. He was the second king of Israel. As such, we remember the kind of man that he was. Early on, he had defeated Goliath. He was a man filled with courage and with proper consideration of the truth and the power of God. David was impressive. It is even said that he was a man after God's own heart. But might I ask, what about his parenting skills? How did David's children turn out? And you and I know, as we notice on the slide, they didn't turn out very good. In terms of their direction toward God, there were problems, there were issues. His family was a mess. We well remember, do we not, that one of his sons raped his own half-sister. One of the other sons killed that son. The time came that that living son then rebelled against his own father and wanted to actually throw his father off the throne. We see anarchy within the family. May I suggest to you... Though David was a good man in many ways, he apparently wasn't a very good parent. That's a strong reminder to all of us today too, isn't it? And we'll have more to say about each of those as the lesson proceeds. But as we come near the close of that slide, may we say, 
it just apparently isn't enough for the well-being of our children just to be good people. They need good parents. Well, what's involved in that? How about point number three? So far in our study of these things, we each have set before ourselves the loving charge and challenge of being the very best parent that we can be so that our children are safeguarded in their journey toward heaven. Point number three is this. Surely one of the grandest appreciations in all the Word of God is this one. Parents, may we all think and think again about this reality. What do my children need to see in me in order for it to be most likely for them to follow in those pathways of righteousness that I have selected? Perhaps there's no finer consideration than the one we read about concerning Timothy. Have you ever almost found yourself in amazement of all the attributes of Timothy's mother and grandmother that Paul could mention, of all the qualities and characteristics of them that the Holy Spirit might have seen fit to preserve. The one mentioned is this one. In 2 Timothy 1, verses 5 and 6, we notice this interesting description. Paul said, When I call to remembrance the unfeigned faith that is in thee, which dwelt first in thy grandmother Lois and thy mother Eunice, and I'm persuaded that is in thee also. Of all the qualities that were mentioned, not only with Lois, but also with the Eunice, and furthermore in Timothy as well, was an unfeigned faith. Let's develop that like this. That word unfeigned, what does it mean? It means genuine. That original word carries the thought of undisguised, to be sincere, to be without hypocrisy. May I say to each of us, and we know it well, we don't even need to be told it. Our children know whether we are genuinely committed to the faith or not. It's not hard for them to appreciate it. They come by the time they're relatively young in age to know whether we really mean this Christianity or not. And if our heart's not in it, it's highly likely they will not be so compelled by it either. After all, what was good enough for dad and mom, they seem to be making it fine. May you and I appreciate well. Our children need to see in us as parents an unfeigned faith, a committed faith, a deep-seated, steadfast faith. Look at some of these verses as we look at them even further. And aren't you also amazed in light of this appreciation that, at least in regard to Timothy, his father was a Greek, according to Acts 16.1. So here was an influence of a godly grandmother and a godly mother, and yet his father probably was not terribly encouraging of his Christianity. And yet, we find in Timothy the overwhelming appreciation that that influence of the unfeigned faith of his mother and grandmother apparently was sufficient to lead him to appreciate what it was that was involved in serving God rightly. That next verse in Proverbs 22, 6, there's a promise stated to all of us as parents. It seems to relate directly to this unfeigned faith. It is, train up a child in the way he should go, and when he is old, he will not depart from it. It says train. That's an ongoing daily set of activities 
It's what one sees in light of an unfeigned faith, isn't it? It isn't a faith that manifests itself a day or two a week. It's a faith that's committed every day to those matters presented in the Word of God. Do our children see that in us? In addition to that, what about that text that closes 1 Corinthians 15? Although it was stated in context relating, of course, to the church, help me apply it briefly to parenthood. Therefore, my beloved brethren, be ye steadfast, unmovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord. For as much as you know that your labor is not in vain in the Lord, parents, time invested to being a parent with a steadfast faith, it'll turn out good. The chances are that it'll not turn back void. But those children will come to appreciate it too. But it hinges on that unfeigned faith of us, doesn't it? As we close that particular slide, think about the conviction invested in the Word of God in these matters. Convictions perhaps beginning in 2 Timothy 2.15. Study to show thyself approved unto God. Do our children see us giving any conviction, any interest in, any investment to the Word of God? Hopefully they do. They should. What about that passage in Romans 10.17? Faith cometh by hearing and hearing by the Word of God. It is a sobering reminder to each of us as parents, isn't it? We have those youngsters, but a little while. Are we molding them as we should? Perhaps we remember that poem that was written so many years ago, but nonetheless, it is a very strong reminding thing even today. I took a piece of plastic clay and idly fashioned it one day. And as my fingers pressed it still, it moved and yielded to my will. I came again when days were past. That piece of clay was hard at last. The form I gave it, it still bore. And I could change that form no more. I took a piece of living clay and formed it gently day by day and fashioned it with power and art, a young child's soft and yielding heart. I came again when years had passed. And as you notice, that young man had become just what his parents had instilled within him from the days of youth. Something to think about, isn't it? Do they see in us this steadfastness of faith? Let's close that slide like this. May each of us as parents keep in mind perhaps an example that the Apostle Paul, at least in light of other principles, has shared with us. In Colossians 1.9, for example, he prayed specifically for that church in Colossae. May I ask each of us as parents, do you pray for your children by name? Do you pray to God mentioning the actual name of your child, not just something in general? We should. For they're the most precious things in terms of us leading them toward heaven. Let's pray for them. Pray for their wisdom. Pray that they will make the right decisions. Pray that those pathways they choose to follow will redound to their citizenship and goodness as they become faithful servants to the God of heaven. The next point in our lesson. What else can we also say about how the God helps us, the God of the Bible helps us think about these matters? Discipline. That one perhaps is one that fits in in an unusual way. But I would ask we think of it like this. Not only the genuineness, the steadfastness, the unfeigned character of faith, but it would seem from the teaching of the Word of God that one of the attributes that has a tremendously great role to play 
is the way we discipline our children. I say that because of what we're about to find as we study the Word of God together. Let's begin it like this. As you and I both know, there are some parents who it seems choose not to discipline very much their children, believing that the child, by the examples of those around him or her, will ultimately make the best decision and will follow along the ways of propriety. But would you please note pretty quickly those examples to which I alluded earlier. Eli. We've already stated what rascals his sons were, and although they had great access and opportunity to serve in the tabernacle, they acted so wickedly. I wonder why, and I wonder what other attribute the Holy Spirit has chosen to mention. Could I direct your attention to 1 Samuel 3.13? His children were vile, it says, in the presence of the Lord, and he, that's Eli, restrained them not. As I mentioned, Eli apparently wasn't a very good parent, and the one thing that's lacking, he just didn't discipline them. He didn't restrain them. He allowed them to do what they wanted to do, and they chose poorly. May I say that as parents, although it's not fun to discipline our children, we must appreciate the fact that in order for them to be what they hopefully shall be, discipline is required. It must not be optional. The example of David fits right in with this too. Remember, he too had sons that often chose so poorly. What is said in 1 Kings 1 verse 6? Of all the children of David, Adonijah is under discussion there. And of him it is said his father never displeased him. David just didn't rebuke him. He didn't chasten him. He didn't discipline him. And of course, Adonijah turned out to be a pretty bad character himself. From an early age, we need to make sure to discipline properly, to discipline appropriately. And as we do so, some of these additional statements perhaps are in order. Never ever does the Bible condone abusing a child. That's not loving. That's not consistent with the character of the God of heaven. But may we be quick to say, the Bible wholly endorses what we would call spanking. In fact, the rod is mentioned several times. My granddad liked to switch personally, but there were belts and there were clothes coat hangers and whatever else was handy. I needed it, and I'm thankful to God they did it. At the time, it wasn't fun for me, admittedly. But may we keep in mind, the Bible says, He shall not die if you use a rod on him. As you and I are reminded of those characteristics and those matters, discipline is an incredibly important part of being a good parent. After all, doesn't the writer in Proverbs say in Proverbs 20, 13, 24, as you think about sparing the rod, what does it do? It spoils the child. And not only that, in Proverbs 29, 15, foolishness is bound in the heart of a child, but the rod of correction will drive it from him. Children can develop poor habits, and they may well characterize them for a lifetime. But one good discipline may well end that behavior and it'll never reappear. To be a good parent, we must discipline. As the book of Proverbs leads us to notice, sometimes vital lessons in life are shared as we discipline. After all, a child learns, My dad thought this behavior was so terribly bad that he whipped me for it, and I've never forgot it. 
Sometimes lying should be like that. The first time your little boy or girl tells a lie, make sure that they know that's a big deal. Don't let them leave that moment thinking this isn't really such a big matter. Make sure they understand and they'll never forget it. Not only that, as we come to the next point in our lesson, these matters of parenthood perhaps lead us to this one. A child should appreciate, of course, your love for them. They'll know that that discipline wasn't motivated by hatred. As they appreciate your character, they'll know that that discipline that you sent their way was motivated by your absolute desire for what's best for them. Now, admittedly, they may not see that then, but they will come to understand it. That boy that turns 18 or 19 or 25 and finally realizes what dad and mom did and they come to appreciate the choices and sacrifices and the directed love, then they'll know, then they'll appreciate and in, perhaps in wisdom they'll learn it earlier than that. But love is that which seeks the absolute best of its object. As you consider this matter about love, as parents, we desire then to help our children be responsible, to help them make the right decisions, and to encourage them in that way. As we seek opportunities to help them do that, we'll demonstrate that love to them. And in that demonstration, they'll come to appreciate it. As you come near the bottom of that slide, aren't you somewhat amazed as you think about certain attributes of the life of Jesus? It seems as if children were almost magnetically attracted to him. In Matthew 18, he sat a little child in front of the whole group and used that to teach a remarkable lesson on humility. On other occasions, little children were coming to him, wanting blessings to be pronounced on those children by the parents. May I say to you that as you and I think about this attribute, do you suspect children could sense the love in Jesus? That here was a man given to truth. He lived it. He taught it. He practiced it. My suspicion is in many ways the innocence of a child is naturally drawn to truthfulness and may we embody it. May we always say what we mean and mean what we say. May we always lead them in the pathways of goodness that they see in us, that faith they hear us talk so much about. This attribute of love leads us to the sixth and final point to the lesson. Despite all the things that we've studied so far, it still is the case that the child will make the choices for him or herself. We can't force them to be Christians. We can't make them be believers. We can't give to them perhaps what we most want them to have. They've got to make that decision themselves. Let's then speak a moment about this individual responsibility. And may we begin it with this thought. Perhaps as parents, we may on occasion act with naiveness. We may think, I have led my son and my daughter, I've led my children the way they should go, and I know they've got to live in the midst of this evil world, but they're going to choose the way that's right. May I say that's a bad assumption. After all, the influence of the world is always, always, always evil. The influence of the world is never going to be Christian-like. It's never going to be good. It's never going to be prompted and motivated in the way that leads to heaven. 
The world is always going to influence evilly. So as parents, we then have some tough choices to make. That son says, Dad, I want to go to the prom. Son, I am not going to let you go to that prom. I know you may not like it. But for your well-being, the influences that are there are not going to be wholesome. They're not going to be prompting to spiritual development. And quite frankly, by the end of the night, things could turn out terribly bad. And it's a decision fraught with such consequence, I cannot allow you to go. Just one example among so many others that might be mentioned. But the point is, may we never assume as parents that our children will obviously be able to overwhelm those evil influences so that we never allow them to be in positions which we at least can avoid. On the middle of that slide, then, you'll notice several examples and others might have been mentioned. What happened to Barnabas? Here was one in Acts chapter 4 who was so strong in his determination to follow the Lord and in fact he sold possessions and gave them for the benefit of the early church. That same man was led into dissolution in Galatians chapter 2 as he followed the example of Peter. What about Demas? As the book of Colossians ends, Demas was a faithful servant of God. Here was one who sent greetings along with others to that church in Colossae, and yet by the time of 2 Timothy 4, Paul wrote, Demas has forsaken me. He's loved this present world. May we never think the world's influence can't be strong, even on good people. Demas at one time strong enough to be a companion, it would seem, of none other than Paul himself, and yet here he was. He chose to love the world more. May we safeguard to the extent it's proper at least the nature of our children. And let's close the slide by noting this. Our children ultimately will have to make their own decisions. They'll reach a point where they will have to decide whether the faith they've seen embodied in dad and mom is sufficient for them and whether they want to live that life. And oh, we hope they do. We pray they do. We desire they do. But ultimately, it has to be their decision. You'll notice then in light of that, in Joshua 24, 15, it says, Choose you this day whom you'll serve. To those young people in the audience, I might at least make this brief statement. When you reach that point of knowing wrong from right, don't put off obeying the gospel. The devil will make sure the influences of the world, and there will be many, in those high school years, those college age years, there will be many, and they're not going to be good. You're better off to get a well-fortified faith in the Lord early. Get started serving the Lord now. And when you are, continue to walk that way through life, despite the fact challenges are going to come. But you'll always have a platform on which to build a proper and right life. Don't put it off to later. You think, well, when I get to be age 22 or I, when I graduate from college or when I have a family, then I will. I'll assure you, the devil will bring enough additional considerations in life that it's going to be harder then. As we close this lesson today, we've studied about good people and bad children. But along the way, we've learned so much about some things the Bible has to say about parenthood. As we close our lesson, let's simply end it like this. 
we all want to be good people, but more than that, as parents, we want to be good parents. That means we exhibit a steadfast faith. It means that we discipline as appropriate. It means that we love them and we want their soul to go to heaven more than anything else. It does mean, though, that we respect the fact that they may make poor choices on their own. After they leave our house, they may choose badly. That may break our heart. But while we have them under our home, may we help encourage and solidify in their thinking the way that's right, training them up in the way they should go. Today, it may be that there's one or more in our audience who has never rendered obedience to the gospel of Christ, never become a Christian. You realize that Jesus died for you and He wants you to be saved. And there's only one way that can happen. For He is the way, the truth, and the life. John 14, 6. Why not put Him on in baptism today if that's the circumstance of your life? You must believe, admittedly, repent of your sins and confess His name but we'd be happy to immerse you into Christ. And you could rise from that watery grave, a new creature in Christ, and ready in strength to live faithfully through life. If you've begun that walk, but you haven't been faithful, maybe you have allowed distractions to cloud your judgment, and you've begun to walk in ways of which you're not proud. You know, though, there's a God in heaven that still wants you to be saved. Why not come back to your first love today? We'd be honored to pray to God on your behalf. You must repent of those sins and confess them, of course, and beseech us to pray to God for you. If today any of those circumstances would be the situation of your life, why don't you come and do it now while together we stand and while we sing?